Thanks, James. These words form the beginning of quite a long passage of teaching that Jesus offered just before he was arrested or went off to the Mount of Olives to be arrested. In fact, in the passage just before the one James read, uh, Jesus has just sent Judas off to betray him. Sent him off, indicated that he knew what was going on, and Judas left and did the business. And Jesus' own crucifixion must, been, must have been in the forefront of his mind as he was sitting with the disciples around the Passover meal and knowing this was his last opportunity to give them the goods, to tell them the things that were really important. So this is absolutely critical teaching. And it starts off with the fact that now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Of course, we assume Jesus is unique. God, man, who else among us can claim that? But one of the things that makes Jesus unique in the way that he lived life is that he didn't do what we by nature do. We by nature follow each other. By nature we get a sense of what the community finds acceptable. For our own safety reasons and survival reasons we place ourselves in the middle of what we think will be acceptable to our best extent. Nobody wants to be left behind, nobody wants to be the outlier. We take our cues from each other. Jesus, by contrast, continually made it clear that he did the things he saw his father doing. And they were often not what everybody else was doing. It was quite unique. In fact, it kept getting him into all sorts of bother. I mean, it's nice to see that Jesus was a follower too, just like we are, human, just like we are. The difference is who he chose to follow. I mean, I don't know how aware you are of your own following. It starts off at a very young age. We grow up in a context and we work out what's valuable according to the values that those who we trust and who bring us up tell us. Or they don't even tell us. They just hold those values and we assume them as well. And it goes on from there as we go through teenage years and being part of a group is so important and we, we try to work out what the group we want to be part of is like and how to be part of that group. And all of this is done not so deliberately but just through our instinctual working out. As I say, by contrast, Jesus kept taking his cues from someone who was outside of the community, from his father, the values of the kingdom, and they were quite different to the values of the community so often. Jesus kept getting himself in trouble because when it came to the teachings about the Sabbath, for example, he would heal on the Sabbath, whereas the community said, you don't do that on the Sabbath. When a woman who had bleeding came up and the community said, you don't touch someone like that, they're unclean, he understood the values of his father and moved with compassion to touch and to heal. Jesus uh, kept getting in trouble. And he did this because he knew the nature of eternal life. 
it wasn't just that he thought, oh, I better do the right thing. If I do the wrong thing, I'll get in trouble or something like that. He knew that these values, the values expressed by his father, the ones that he was following, were in fact the ways of the richest, most abundant, fullest, most connected, eternal way of doing life. He knew the nature of eternal life, not just that he would be raised again after his crucifixion, although he seemed to know that too, but even in the way he engaged with people, the things that he held to be important as he spoke with people, as he made his choices in his community, he did those things that were of eternity, that stood forever. He was not naive. He was not idealistic. He, of all people, seemed to have a clear sense that by continuing to behave in the way that he did, he was putting himself at risk. He knew the time would come when the community would turn against him because he was not one of them. But he kept going because for him, that was life. There was not an alternative in one sense. He had free choice, but why would you choose not life? And so he kept choosing to do that which brought life. He was unique in that way. And so God was glorified in the Son of Man. How? How was God glorified? And you can see that Jesus definitely had what was about to happen in mind here. He says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Not what I was doing last week over in Capernaum or something like that, but now, in this moment, as Judas goes off to get the authorities, as I go into this false trial, as I get hung on a cross, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And it's kind of topical that we're celebrating Anzac at this time as well, or remembering Anzac. We don't really celebrate, we remember, because Jesus had an incredible willingness to go to his death. He didn't desire to go to his death. He didn't manufacture the situation so that he would be killed, but he had a willingness. He didn't run from it from it when he saw it coming. He didn't hide. He didn't pretend or change his story in order to avoid what was coming. He didn't divert to someone else. He did no blame shifting in the process. There's no sense of suicidal death wish. But there is a sense of love beyond self-survival. And I think that's the best moments of Anzac that we remember as well. We forget how rare this is, and particularly in today's very comfort-oriented culture. From time to time, we see someone who acts in a manner that, that really is for the best interests of the community and not in their own self-interest. But it's quite rare. And maybe you know someone who, who does that, but the glory of God is revealed in Jesus' approach to self-giving love. He's not just looking out for himself. He's willing to do that which is true and good right up to the last, even if that means he's about to be crucified. And he stands true to that even though everybody around him rejects him 
And again, I think we underestimate how amazing this is. John's gospel highlights the fact that the disciples desert him. They run off. I mean, already the civic authorities and the religious authorities and the bystanders are ganging up on Jesus. But then his closest friends also bugger off, as it were. And Peter, who vowed and declared that he would stand with Jesus, denies him three times in the courtyard of the high priest. How can this possibly be glorious? This is one of the lowest moments of humanity's relationship with the divine. What manner of glory could be said to be found here? And I think it is the glory of standing true to the Father. Even in the midst of this abandonment by everybody, Jesus does not change his tune. He doesn't suddenly go, oh, I got it wrong. I misunderstood the situation. You misheard me. He didn't try to, he just stood true. He displays no recrimination or anger against the people who are condemning him. He doesn't crumble under the weight of it. He never caves in to the verdict of the crowd, but he has no sociopathic disregard for the crowd either. It's this amazing tension. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but if you're in a room full of people and they all believe something together, it's very hard not to agree with them, even if that belief is about condemning you. And they saw this in the Nuremberg trials and places like that, and it's quite a common known phenomena that if everybody in the room condemns somebody, the victim themselves, even if they are innocent, will start to believe they are guilty because of the weight of the opinion of every other person. How could they be right and everybody else be wrong? Oh, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I really am guilty. And this crumbling can occur. It doesn't occur with Jesus. He never changes his tune. He chooses to stay silent at different times because there's no point speaking, but he never takes on the verdict of the crowd. And I think this is the glory. It's a raw, humble, disregarded glory of truth. And so Jesus is scapegoated. The system uh, of blaming somebody so that all the angst of the community can be taken out on that one and the community can get on again. And Jesus knows that's going on, but he knows he's innocent. And that innocence becomes vindicated when he rises again afterwards and it indicates that everybody thought that he was guilty, but the only innocent person in the whole drama was the one everybody thought was guilty, which means everybody else is actually guilty. And it breaks the whole system. The glory of God is revealed in a new foundation for relating to one another. No longer can we scapegoat, can we push our blame off to somebody else and blame them. We have to take responsibility. The call of the gospel is to repent, to change the way we do things, to take appropriate responsibility, 
The gospel is a grace that enables us to do that because we are not condemned. We can see clearly what's going on and take responsibility for what's ours and confess and turn away. If we persist in pushing our guilt onto someone else, then we persist in our own condemnation of not being in touch with the reality of our lives. But the grace of Christ allows us to be honest about what's going on and take responsibility, but not the judgment. Not the judgment. We get to the, the last bit, which is, of course is the hardest bit of all, where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And as Ian rightly pointed out in the, new, the service sheet, a uh, little blurb at the front, it's not a new idea. And even people will readily say, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But Jesus is saying, no, love like I have loved you. And this is a whole other key of love, in a sense. This is the expression of Jesus' call to follow him. Do it like I do it. Love like I have loved. Follow the Father who gives us the example of that love, just as I have followed that example as well. Rather than looking to the crowd to tell you what's right and good and true, what's acceptable, what's the way to do life, look to the Father. Look to me, says Jesus, because I look to the Father. I'll show you what that's about. It's actually not that complicated. Do not be swayed by the crowd. The crowd has a tendency toward being self-serving, towards its own survival. The values, desires and priorities that Jesus lived are precisely what he's calling us to follow and they're not the crowd's values, priorities or desires. They are in fact vulnerable, self-giving love. True love is always vulnerable. You cannot be non-vulnerable and to love because whenever you genuinely love, you open your heart. And whenever you open your heart, you are vulnerable. The most vulnerable you can be. It's self-giving. That is of the nature of love. It's incredibly risky. And nothing can remove that risk. It's, it's inherent in the whole thing. Jesus demonstrated this to the fullest. He was not shielded from its implications. You know, we would like a God who could be incredibly loving and not vulnerable. That would be great, wouldn't it? Imagine being able to be incredibly loving, all the things that we consider to be good about love without the vulnerability, without the potential of being hurt. It's, it's an impossibility. And Jesus demonstrates that because he loves so generously. And what does he get for it? Crucifixion. What a model. Do we really follow that? Is that the glory of God? Jesus wept when he saw those he cared about in distress. He intervened when he saw the vulnerable being excluded. He did not run from the cross even when he saw it coming. Whenever we choose to love, we are also choosing to suffer. Whenever we choose to love, we are also choosing vulnerability. And whenever we choose to love, we are choosing the fullest, richest, deepest, most connected and eternal form of life. 
It's all part of the package. And this is the lived expression of eternal life. Um, the values and desires we see in Jesus, his priorities, that's what eternity looks like if it's lived in real time and space. They are the way the lived experience of eternity looks like now. As we live them, others notice. This is how people know that we are his disciples because we carry those same values, those same priorities. We have those same desires. Now, maybe not everybody notices. Some people are so caught up with the crowd, like the big shots. The people that are most powerful, or seemingly most powerful, are actually those who ride the favor of the group. And in order to ride the favor of the group, you've kind of got to be the servant of the group. Only they're self-serving. There's a, there's a very codependent matrix that comes in here. But people who are looking for the kingdom, when we live out Jesus' values and desires and priorities, they notice. More often than not, they're people that are being left behind by the crowd because they haven't had the wherewithal to contort themselves in such a way to keep up with the crowd. And really, they're looking for something that's not of the crowd. They're looking for something different. Sometimes they're poorer people. Sometimes they're misfits. And they notice more readily. And we see that with Jesus as well. The people that had their stake in the big community societal game, they found Jesus a bit unnerving. But those who'd been left behind, they thought he was fantastic because they really got his values. People will know when we live, when we love as Jesus lived and loved, people do know. So in a moment, we're going to gather around this table. It's a simplified version of the Passover that we shared on uh, Friday night, and anyone who was here on Friday can see how much more simplified it is. We had lashings of roast lamb and baked potatoes and all sorts of wonderful things. That's actually where we get our Lord's table from. We've just taken all the, the good rich bits out of it to make it simpler because we couldn't do a big meal every time we had communion. <laughs> know that the glory of God was revealed in Jesus' life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. His call to us is to follow him just as he followed his father. And in this way, we will not be able to avoid making him known. That kind of glory is seen by those who are looking for it and actually by those who are not looking for it, only their response is to try to shut it down. It gets a bit tricky at that point. But as we gather, remember Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, in these things the glory of God are seen and as we follow him they are seen in us too. Let's pray. Lord, it is indeed a strange glory, one that is so often incomprehensible to us because it doesn't follow the law of the crowd. It follows the values of your heart of vulnerable love.
This destabilizes us and threatens us, and yet we are hungry for it and want to give ourselves to you and discover the fullness of it. Help us to hear what your Spirit is saying to us this morning that we might glorify you just as Jesus did. In your precious name, amen.